Welcome everyone to episode 5 of Phenomenal Flicks. As you know by now, my name is Tommy Tracy and I am the host of this podcast. As you also know by now, I did miss last week's episode of The King of Staten Island that I promised. Here's a few reasons why that happened. The first one is there were some technical difficulties with the app that I was using, Anchor, which has been fixed. This is a fantastic app. It was just a small little detail that we couldn't work around. Um, I also had some Wi-Fi problems for about a day, which was weird. And also, life gets in the way of things that you want to do when you are an adult who has to rely on work for, you know, income. Um, I am a manager at a restaurant, and we are reopening the restaurant in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, Nothing against the place I work. I love the place I work, but this is just how the economy, unfortunately, works. Um, Lives are less important than income and money, so... This is, you know, this is reality, unfortunately. Um, You can actually hear my thoughts on this and other things related to A, restaurant work, and B, this fucking pandemic we're going through on another podcast on two-week media, um, Faking It, which I've mentioned before, hosted by Katie Legner and Jess Johnston. I am the latest interviewee on that episode, which I believe released, released on Sunday. So go listen to that as well. Um, you get to hear my thoughts and some little funny quips about my life in the past seven or eight years working in restaurants. There's also, you know, a lot a lot is going on this year, as you guys know. I don't have to explain it to you, both globally, um, regionally, and personally for me, as well as, you know, things going on with films not being released in theaters because of the pandemic. So it's taken a lot of adaptability I I kept saying, oh, I want to have a concise schedule, and these are going to be released on these days, but movie theaters are apparently reopening back up sometime next month, and I don't know what the releases are going to be like for that, so I think for the time being, I'm going to stop saying, this is what I'll have for you next week, and instead say, I will have a review for you next week, and then I'll figure it out in the time for that, because I don't like promising something and then things getting changed. It looks like Tenet will be released in theaters on July 31st still. Definitely want to go see that, but I also don't want to go back to movie theaters. So again, we we will see. Um, a little bit of housekeeping things as well. I will have some music to start each episode. That way, you don't hear me start each one with the same monotone. Welcome to Conflict. My name blah blah blah. Um, it's made by a friend of a friend of mine. Um, his name is Grant Alexander. The rough cuts sound fantastic so far. Um, he's kind of fine tuning some things, and then I will be able to attach that to the beginning of each episode. And I'm very excited about that. It's gonna, It sounds great so far. I I'm, I'm, cannot wait to hear it at the beginning of each episode. All right, so on to business. Um, I am reviewing, as you see in the title, Judd Apatow's The King of Staten Island, um, Disney Plus's Artemis Fowl, and Netflix's The Five Bloods, all which actually released on June 12th. I thought, why not just talk about all three of them? They are three incredibly, vastly different films, and I think they need to be talked about. Um, like I said, I, I promised the King of Staten Island last week, so that's the one I'm going to start with. Um, this is directed by Judd Apatow. It stars Pete Davidson, Marissa Tomei, Bill Burr, and uh, Judd Apatow's uh, daughter, who you've seen probably in a lot of his films, Maude Apatow, who has grown up now, and it's kind of weird because I remember her from, like, Knocked Up as a very young kid. And uh, it also has Steve Buscemi in it, who I love. Um, it's a semi-autobiographical story about Davidson's life. Um, he's a young man, he's 24, who has to get his life together 
after his mom starts dating um, a new guy who's played by Bill Burr, who's a firefighter, just like uh, Scott, that's the name of David's character's real uh, dad, who died in a fire, I think in like 2003 in the story. It's it's strange because Davidson's real-life father died in the 9-11 attacks. So this is where the autobiograph- autobiographical, it's a very hard word to say fast. This is where that comes into play. And Davidson, who never really takes himself too seriously, doesn't do so here as well, while also trying to be a more human character than his comedic roles usually let you to believe. That sounds a little confusing, I know. It's it's kind of one of the movies that you have to sort of see it to believe it. Unfortunately, I think The King of Staten Island is going to be an easy film for people to pick apart. Um, Davidson is a polarizing figure in comedy. I, I find him endearing. I like him. I think he's funny. Um, and Judd Apatow is also a polarizing figure. I mean, a lot of people love some of his early work, but think he sort of overstayed his welcome years ago. Again, I like him. Um... I get that I get that aspect of Apatow's career, but I, I think he's pretty funny. Um, he knows how to direct. He does make some of his newer films a little too overlong. We'll talk about that here because this is a 137-minute movie. And at a 1999 price tag, because you can only rent it for a day at $20, that's how this movie's gonna make its money. It's already turned a lot of people off, unfortunately. Many would ponder, is it worth it? And I I think it is. I recommend the film. I'm not going to get to my grade until the end. I'm also here to say if you don't find Davidson or Apatow funny, then you probably don't want to spend the $20 to buy it. It's 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 sort of hard to recommend this movie to people because on one hand, I like both people and I'll get into why I like this movie in a little bit. But again, the price tag, the runtime, the one day rental is going to throw a lot of people off. Um... Like I said, it's no secret that Davidson kind of reviews his life as one like complete joke. Um, his dad, like I said again, died in the 9-11 attacks. He has some very serious mental health issues. He has been in the media the past two or three years because of his relationship with Ariana Grande. Uh, he has some alcohol and drug issues. All things he openly discusses in his stand-up routines and on his Saturday Night Live routines. Um, if you don't like Davidson, like I said, you're going to want to stay away from this movie. There's nothing the man can do that's going to make people like him anymore, which is also also now part of his routine. Um, this plays off well with his character. Like I said, his name's Scott. He's a loser, for lack of a better term. Um, he's not even really liked by his own mother or his sister. I mean, they love him, but they don't really like him because he's a dude who's living in his mom's house, trying to be a tattoo artist who also wants to open a tattoo restaurant, which I think would be an awesome idea, but the health code violations in that would be astronomical. Um... He doesn't really do anything but tattoo, and he tattoos poorly, by the way. Um, he smokes a lot of weed, and he lacks enthusiasm on pretty much anything, even sex, which it happens in like the first 10 minutes of the movie. And it's it's kind of a fe- funny and sweet scene, but yeah, he just he lacks absolutely zero, zero enthusiasm, if anything. Um, it might sound like I'm kind of tearing this movie apart a little bit. I'm not. Um, Scott is, in my opinion, kind of like tragically likable a character that you really want to see succeed in all of his life aspects despite all of his flaws. He has these ideas of grandeur um, that I mentioned, like the tattoo restaurant, even though his artistic ability is terrible. Uh, He probably can't cook either. That's actually never really explored, but I'm kind of assuming he can. He lives with his mom. She probably cooks everything for him. 
he needs to grow up. Something millennials my age um, and even a little younger millennials kind of refuse to do, at least in the mental capacity for one reason or another. Um, this world's really hard to navigate. We all know this. And even though Scott constantly claims he's stupid, he he knows how difficult living without his cushion of his mother is. He This is a minor spoiler, but he does get kicked out um, from her house and kind of has to figure out things on his own, which is actually the most touching parts of the film, I think, is his relationship with Bill Burr, who plays um, another firefighter, um, and kind of the rest of the firefighters that knew his dad um, before he perished, of course. He gets to hear like a lot of funny stories about his dad, and this is what I think is very therapeutic for Davidson is... You know, everyone was like, oh, your dad's such a great guy. Your dad's awesome. He was a hero, which he is. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from anyone who went into two burning towers and perished at that. Those people are heroes. But you also want to hear the more human aspects of them, like maybe a dude who did cocaine on his nights off or, you know, went and drank and got so stupid that he passed out and peed his pants. Something like that, which are things that Davidson has one heard in real life and Scott gets to hear about in his movie. It's crude, it's funny, and it's very lovable. And Davidson's heart shines through in ways we haven't seen before. I mean, he he talks about these things in his stand-up, but he's not acting. He's just kind of telling you jokes and telling you stories. And here he's acting and he does a fantastic job. He's a more realistic version of the loser characters that we all really liked from the 80s and 90s. Um, so when a kid has a parent die, they deal with it in different ways. I fortunately have never had a parent pass away, um, but I know people who have, and they, of course, handle it either well or incredibly poorly, and no one's judging them on that. Um, the parent usually begins to date someone sooner. The The living parent, of course, usually begins to date someone sooner rather than later, um, Scott's mom, Margie, who's played amazingly, as always, by the fantastic Marissa Tomei, waits 17 years to date someone, um, causing her already childish son to act out even more childishly. Um, Margie is sort of kind of dour and lets Scott walk all over her, but when she begins to date Ray, who's played by Bill Burr, um, she starts to get more confidence, more happiness and realizes that her son is kind of a burden on her life. Uh, Ray is kind of a by-the-numbers conservative type who constantly tries to make Scott grow up as well. Um, again, minus spoilers here, but nothing too crazy. You would assume just through seeing movies over the years that everyone gets in a fight, learns something about themselves, and then comes together at the end, which does happen here. You were you right a little bit, but it's done in such a unique and sincere way which I you may have seen in a film before, but nothing to this grandeur and it's actually very fantastic both bill burr and marissa tomei and of course pete davidson are fantastic in this movie they play three different characters and you you want to see how they interact with each other you kind of don't like ray at first but then you start to like him a little later kind of like scott you don't like him at first then you start to like him later as well and it's it's just so sweet and loving even with the crude and rude humor that these people have um, now it's going to sound like I'm praising the film too much. Sadly, there are problems um, in all the good that I do like. There are a few plot, point, plot, uh, plot points. Again, something really hard to say fast. I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret. Um, I'm dyslexic. I grew up dyslexic as well, as well with a stutter and a lisp all at the same time. So imagine what my fucking childhood was like. But so I am reading, you know, notes that I have. And when I start to talk fast, I trip over my words. So plot points is hard to say fast. Anyway, that was a sidebar. 
gonna get back on topic. There are a few plot points that get dropped, most of which revolve around Scott's um, loser friends as well. They just happen to appear from time to time and then are nowhere to be seen from the last third of the film. Um, there's a, a small plot point with Scott and his friends trying to like rob a pharmacy and then they get caught and then you don't see them the rest of the movie, which is just weird. You think that, you know, he would do something about it or be like, hey, you know, I was part of this. It's just completely dropped. But I do want to give a major shout out to Hannah Montana's Moses Arias um, for being quite funny and like kind of growing up from the little kid who was on Hannah Montana to like a loudmouth, rude, pot smoking kid. It, he was he was pretty funny in the film for his very short time in it. This film is also very Judd Apatow long, like I mentioned. Um, sometimes it does become a chore. I mean, I don't mind a long movie. Comedies don't need to be 137 minutes long. Um, this is my main complaint with Funny People, too. I really like Funny People. It's genuinely funny. It's a heartfelt movie. It's probably one of Adam Sandler's best. But there was probably 20, 30 minutes that could have been cut from it. And that can be the same here. Um, Ray's ex-wife, Gina, is also kind of a waste. Um, she has, like, one good scene that's it's pretty funny. Um, but the rest of her is just kind of exposition for the next scene that involves Scott and, and Ray. And she's she's sort of a wasted character. Um I'm not going to say too much on the technical aspects of this movie. I mean, it's a it's a pretty paint-by-numbers shot film. Um, but The King of Staten Island is, is very warm, despite what the film might sell you in the trailers. It was oddly relatable to me. Um, I lacked direction for a very, very long time. Something that has been pointed out by family members. And so I went and did something about it. And I made something of myself. I went to school. Um, and I moved out of my parents' house. And... I'm trying to become a better person, something that Scott does here, of course. Um, I didn't get kicked out like he does, but you get the point. Um, this is something others might gravitate to as well. I mentioned millennials that are around my age. We were directionless. I mean, our economy sucks, our world sucks, and we don't really know what to do. So I hope this might help people figure out, like, you know, not all is lost. You can do things later in life. You can make something of yourself, even if you feel like a loser. Uh the, t the review probably comes off as a tad bit confusing. I, I get it. I get it because the movie is sort of confusing in the way it teaches you the lesson. But I feel like that's a good thing. It's something I can't actually wait to watch again because I want to see where Scott goes when I already know where he goes, if that makes sense. Um, I'm going to give The King of Staten Island a very high B+. Um, it was pure. It was funny. It was heartfelt. All three of the main actors were incredible. And I do believe, you know, even though the Oscars and the Golden Globes are kind of fucked up this year... I would love to see all three of these get their respective categories for acting because, yeah, I mean, King of Staten Island was fantastic. I definitely recommend it, but again, I know people are not going to want to spend the $20 on it. I say if you're looking for a great movie, you know, just just kind of get over it. Um, but again, it's, up, it's completely up to you. Um, the next one I'm going to review is... Uh, Lord. Uh, Disney Plus's Artemis Fowl, which is directed by Kenneth Branagh um, and stars for, for Dia Shaw, I believe is the kid's name, Lara McDonald, Josh Gad, Colin Farrell, and Dame Judi Dench. And, you know, I could make the joke that this movie is foul, but who hasn't made this joke at this point? Uh, Artemis Fowl is just flat out terrible. It's a real slog to get through. The film was set to drop in theaters, but again, you know, the uh, pandemic pushed it back, so it, it got put on Disney+. Plus. And, well, I'm, I'm really glad that I pay for this service for the long list of other things, because 
if it was just for this, I, I would probably cancel it. Um, I never read the books of Artemis Fowl, so I know, I know they're popular. I know a lot of people like them. This is not a dig on the books. I like to separate the films from the source materials because if I didn't, I would pretty much hate every comic book movie ever and probably the Harry Potter movies and whatnot. So, I mean, just because some things work better on the page doesn't mean that they work well on screen. Um, so, yeah. Um, if you like the books, do not take this as a dig at the books. This is just a dig at the movie. Um, so the plot. The film details the adventures of Artemis Fowl Jr. or Artemis Fowl 2 because, you know, they're British and they're, or they're Irish and they're very, you know, proper. Uh, he's a 12-year-old prodigy who teams with um, his servant, which is not uh, the right thing to call a African-American or a person of color in this day and age, but he is called a servant in this movie. I'm not making that up. He also pairs with a dwarf and a fairy in order to rescue his father, who's played by Colin Farrell, Artemis Fowl 1, uh, who's been kidnapped by another fairy looking to reclaim an item that Fowl's family has stolen years ago. Um, the plot actually, in my opinion, did sound super interesting, but no one, whether it be the writers, whether it be Brana, whether it be Farrell, Josh Gad, or even Judy Dench, bring anything close to their A-game in this movie. Uh, oddly, both uh, Gad, who plays a tall dwarf, and no, I'm not making that up, and Dench, who plays the leader of the Lower Elements Police Reconnaissance, <sighs> do their very worst Christian Bale Batman performances. You might be wondering why I had to take like a big deep breath. I sighed really hard at the name of the fairy police here. Well, when you put the LEP from Lower Elements Police and add it to the first five letters of reconnaissance, it becomes Leprechaun. You get it? Fucking Leprechaun. Beside the point, that's in the book. I know, it's, it's just stupid. Anyway, the film is narrated by Gad from time to time, which is edited so choppily that it becomes hard to follow exactly what the fuck is going on. Things are happening, characters are introduced, and then they're forgotten. Like, um, this little girl who is played by Tamara Smart, um, she happens to be the daughter of uh, Dom Butler, who is the servant. I put that in quotation marks. She's there to kind of like be Artemis's friend, but then she's not there and then she's there again and she doesn't do anything. She was actually pretty cute in her in her few scenes that she had, but when she's not around and then she pops up back in, you're like, oh yeah, there she is. Um, expo this movie is exposition heavy. Um, it's spilled at nauseating speeds to let you know, oh, what you just saw, this is what happened. And I can't stand that. The viewer is not stupid. They can they can tell what they're seeing. Sure, maybe uh, every movie has exposition, every single one, but it's it becomes the level of exposition to where you're just telling your audience, hey, you're dumb, and we're going to tell you exactly what's happening. Uh, the CGI is absolute garbage, and this film was supposed to be released in theaters, and I believe it had like a $125 million budget, something close to that. That That is insane to me. I don't know if the movie wasn't completely finished by the time the pandemic hit and they were just like, well, fuck it, put it on Disney Plus and it'll look fine at this point. Or if these were just what the effects look like, it's it's bad. Um, there, are, there are some things that look cool. Like I think the costume design and the cinematography is pretty decent, but <laughs> effects wise, it is just, it is just poor. I mean, yes, it did not have the budget of an Avengers movie, but when you see all of the Avengers on screen fighting Thanos and his army at the end of, at the end of Avengers Endgame, 
It looks good. I mean, sure, you can tell that it's fake, but it looks good. This, when there's fairies and leprechauns and dwarves all blasting each other, it looks terrible. Uh, as I mentioned, the film is directed by Kenneth Branagh, who I adore because of his works with films such as like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Much Ado About Nothing, and he also directed the first Thor. But here, it doesn't seem like he reigned anything in. Shit flies at the screen so fast, it could cause serious damage to the eyes. It doesn't seem like Branagh had any control over this production, whether it be his actors, whether it be the writing team, whether it even be the production team, because it, he was phoning it in. And nothing about this says, oh, a Kenneth Branagh picture, like the three films I mentioned do. Even Thor, which is a superhero movie, I watch it, I say, this is very Kenneth Branagh. And that is that is not to be seen here at all. If you would have told me that like McGee made this movie, I would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, sidebar, if you don't know who Kenneth Branagh is based off his directing efforts, uh, you would recognize him as Gilderoy Lockhart from the Harry Potter series, most notably, of course, Chamber of Secrets. I touched on Danch and Gad, but the kid who plays Artemis, um, his name is Fadia Shaw, isn't all that great either. And I know, oh, he's a kid, don't pick on him. There are incredible child actors that have been, that are seen now. I mean, the kids from Stranger Things are amazing and the kids that were in it which I know one of them from Stranger Things was in it but they're all fan they seem like they know what they're doing and this kid I feel like he can be better as he ages a little bit um but he does this thing with his lines um where he he says them and then he forgets to emote afterwards he just goes blank face and it's it's kind of funny to see but also sort of sad also another sidebar this is like my fifth one of the episode Fadia Shaw is actually the grandson of Robert Shaw from Jaws. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, hopefully he has as good of a career as his granddad. Um, it's nothing to knock against the kid. You know, he just, he wasn't acting very well. And that has something to do with A, the writing and B, the direction that he was given. I thought uh, Laura McDonald as Holly Short, one of the main fairies. She's, she's decent, but um, it's nothing really to write home about. So... I, I have no positives for this movie except for like, you know, I said the cinematography is really good and the costuming. Uh, this film's a disaster. Something Disney should have known better than to release in this state. So for everything I mentioned, I'm just going to stop talking about this movie and get on to the next one. This movie gets a big fat F from me and it deserves it. And finally, I'm moving on to my third review. Um, it is Defy Bloods, directed by Spike Lee, which stars uh, Delroy Lindo, Jonathan Majors, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., and Chadwick Boseman. And it is a war drama film uh, which details um, aging Vietnam war veterans who return to the country in search of the remains of their fallen squad leader, as well as the treasure they buried while serving there. Um, whew. Listen, this is the best movie of the year so far. I'm letting you guys know that right now. Whether it be the acting, the way this film shot, Spike Lee's direction, the cultural relevance that is just so on the pulse, Defy Bloods is amazing. And I talked about The King of Staten Island being a little long at 137 minutes. This one's about 20 minutes longer, but it doesn't feel like it's wasting your time. Like a, a comedy movie needs to be 90 minutes. Defy Bloods, which is a, um, it's not even really a war film. It's more, it's 100% a drama film with war aspects sprinkled in. Um, I couldn't think of a thing that needed to be cut out. It did not feel like it was two and a half hours long. It did not feel like it was wasting your time with any single shot or scene. Um, I talked about the way this film was shot. 
Uh, it's shot in three different ways, which I think is just brilliant by by Lee and his cinematographer. Um, the first part, the first part is um, kind of the scope aspect, which you're used to. It's the two by three by five ratio, widescreen looking stuff. That's kind of when they enter Vietnam. And I don't mean back in back in the 60s and 70s Vietnam. I mean, current day Vietnam. Um, and then during the flashbacks, um, it's down to the 4-3 ratio. It looks like it's shot on 16 millimeter or at least like edited to be 16 millimeter. It could have been 32 millimeter. Um, but this is actually what people saw on television from the footage brought back from Vietnam at the time. And I think that's really interesting as well that, you know, when it's when it's in modern times, it looks very modern, it looks very sleek. When it's in the 60s, it looks very old, very grainy, very dirty. And then when they're in modern day, but they're in the jungle of Vietnam, it's in the 178, like really crystal, crystal clear looking, IMAX worthy. I feel like this movie should have went to theaters, but again, <laughs> that's not gonna happen. Um, it is just beautiful. Um, another really smart thing that Lee did is the the main actors who are playing the roles um, of the older people. So it's Delroy Lindo plays Paul, Clark Peters plays Otis, Norm Lewis plays Eddie, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. plays Melvin, and Chadwick Boseman plays uh, Storm and Norman Holloway, who is their squad leader. So the first four actors that I mentioned are older. They're all in their 60s, maybe early 70s. But Chadwick Boseman, we know, is, I think he's 40 at the most. He's, he's not old at all. So you're thinking, well, how, how do these four people with varying age differences get together? Well, here's the thing. So in the Vietnam era, you've got a young Chadwick Boseman, and you've got these four older people. And it's it's their memories. So when they flash him back to their memories, they're not remembering what they look like when they were younger. They're, they're their older selves in the 60s. And then it flashes back to, or it flashes forward to now, and they're their older selves again. Because you probably can't remember what you look like 50 or 60 years ago. And so you see an older Delroy Lindo fighting the Viet Cong in the 60s, and then it flashes to him forward, and it's the same exact Delroy Lindo. Speaking of Delroy Lindo, who plays Paul, he is... He's the best actor of the year so far. I know it's only June. This is the best performance. I cannot think of five performances that are even close to this for this year so far. He is power. He is just a powerhouse. He leads the film from beginning to end. Uh, he's he's strong. He's able to be just the best commentary on not only veterans who fought in that war, but just veterans in general, how they're treated by us when they get back from war, how they're treated by the, and I don't mean us, like me personally, or you personally, I mean like the, the country, the way the VA is treated, and especially Vietnam war vets who had to fight a war that no one agreed with. They were serving their country, and then they got back, and they were treated like absolute shit, while they had to commit atrocities for something they probably didn't agree with. That's, again, a whole nother podcast. You can listen to a billion history podcasts on what was wrong with the Vietnam War, but he plays the character so well you wonder if he actually fought there in real life um he's actually a MAGA hat wearing uh Trump supporter and if you if you were unaware um each of the main characters is an African-American so um to see you know a black man wearing a MAGA hat um causes a lot of personal and political rifts between people I'm not here to comment on that but it's it's very funny to see he's like you know what I support these things and blah 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 and it causes a rift between him and his fellow bloods, um, and I, I I thought that was actually pretty entertaining. He wears a mega hat throughout the majority of the movie, and I didn't actually realize it until about an hour in. 
Um, it's just a really small detail. And he doesn't comment on Trump things a lot. He doesn't say like, oh, I agree with Trump on this, this, and this, and this is why you should act like this. It's like briefly mentioned and kind of hidden in the background. And I think that was actually brilliant on Lee's part. Um, the actor who plays Otis as well, I mentioned, um, his name is Clark Peters, is fantastic as well. He's sort of the main character, if that makes sense. Sure, Paul's the one that like leads the squad, but Otis is the one who um, gets them there and you know, is is really the one who says we have to do this for Storm and Norman, who was again played by Bozeman, who died um, during the war. Um, yeah, uh, Clark Peters, Clark Peters, I cannot say enough good things about as well. Um, he was very sincere. He's a little older than the rest of them. So he's he's walking on crutches and he, he has so much determination to get out of Vietnam alive twice. Um, and you feel that on his face through every line he says as well. Um, the other actors were also fantastic. They have a little less screen time, a little less lines. Um, but I think just everyone across the board did an amazing job in this movie. There's not one character that you that you don't agree with or you or you hate. And it's it's such a beautiful ensemble piece, well directed, well acted. Um, the use of French and Vietnamese actors as well, I think, was great as well. You could have easily had, um, you know, another person of Asian descent or even. Uh, a white woman playing this French girl with a French accent. Instead, they went um, culturally appropriate with it, and I think that was great as well. Uh, the war, the war scenes. My God, the way the war scenes are shot are just intense. They're anxiety-inducing. They're not even. I think maybe there's two or three minutes of war in this film, so it's not like you're even getting a lot of war. War. Uh, God, let me try that again. You're not getting a lot of you know shooting and. And the things you get from a film like maybe Apocalypse Now or Platoon, uh, they're very sparse throughout this movie. Um, but every time that they're happening, you are kind of gripping your chair. There is one scene in particular that happens in modern time. It's maybe about eight minutes long. That is A, one of the goriest scenes I've seen all year. And B, it had me sweating. Um, I had my fan on me and I was sweating just being like, how are they going to get out of this? what is going to happen next that is some brilliant fucking macgyver shit that you did and you'll know exactly what i mean when you see it um the last part i want to touch on is just spike lee in general he always has something to say when he mentions something important culturally uh he means it he says it with so much conviction you have the trouble not believing him even if you don't agree with him you have to believe what he says when something important is brought up, he flashes important shots on screen. Some of them are disturbing. He even lingers on a few of the atrocities that were committed to the Vietnamese people during the war. And he does not hold back with the imagery and the videos. Some of them were horrible, to, to say the least. Um, and they're effective. They're, they're, he, he is letting you know this is what happened. You're going to see it. I'm going to make sure you see it. Um, I already kind of touched on what the film has to say about war and the horrors afterwards. Um, you know, he, he knows that the Vietnamese people were treated poorly. He knows that the Americans that came back from war, especially the black community, were treated poorly as well. He he talks a lot about the Civil War, how um, the African-Americans were forced to fight in that war. And then also World War One and World War Two and the Vietnam War, all when black rights were happening, or there was still a little bit of um, segregation, not a little bit, there was a lot of segregation, there was nothing but segregation 
and he talks about how they were forced to fight in these wars and yet given nothing when they when they returned back to their homeland um and that's a big part of Delroy Lindo's character as well um he also hits on some black lives matter things near the beginning and near the end that he it doesn't go into as much detail as black Klansman does which is also a fantastic movie uh but it it is interspliced and connects so well with what is said with the whole the way blacks were treated during wartime um as I mentioned, it's it's soldiers fighting a war no one cared for and soldiers that were looked at as like enemies by both sides, which is just baffling to me that hopefully as a as a community, we've realized that it's not their fault. You know, they were told to do a service. The, the way the draft was, the way that people were forced, if you were, if you dodge the draft, you were a felon, unless you're Donald Trump and then you become the fucking president of the United States. Beside the point, it's, it's such a good commentary on the shitty things that happened during this war and how they actually continue to happen again, like I said, especially to black people, the systemic racism, the fucking, the way they are looked at upon society. Lee really always has his fingers right on the pulse. Um, I haven't said anything bad about this movie because there's nothing bad to say about this movie. It's an, it's an A plus in my book. It is in my opinion. So, well, you know what? I'm not going to get to that quite yet because I'm going to talk about next week where I actually do know what I'm doing. I'm going to, it's the end of June, so I'm going to give you a top 10 list, my very first one on this show, of the best movies of the year so far. Granted, I know there's like an asterisk next to that. I also want to do the 10 best performances, and I'm going to add some music into this as well and do my 10 favorite albums so far. So it's going to be probably a longer episode, hopefully no longer than an hour, um, I didn't want to jump into that right away. I kind of got swept up in it because I changed my script a little bit. But um, yeah, the <laughs> Defy Bloods is an A-plus film all the way through and through. Please watch it. It's on Netflix. If you have a subscription, you can watch it. It is definitely worth your time. That will be it for my show today. Thank you guys so much for listening. I know this ran almost 35 minutes. Um, I felt like I had a lot to talk about. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please watch The King of Staten Island. Please watch The Five Bloods. Please do not fucking watch Artemis Fowl because it is horrendous. Um, I appreciate it, guys. And as always, stay phenomenal.